You are listening to the Catholic Recon Podcast, testimonies from Catholic reverts and converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. Don't forget to leave a review and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, folks. Welcome to this week's episode of Catholic Recon Testimonies from Reverts and Converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. Before I get to this week's guest, I want to remind you to subscribe to my channel. We're close to, by the time this airs, we'll be over 500 subscribers. We're trying to quickly hit 1,000. And I invite you to go to my website and check it out and also go to the sponsorship page and consider donating to the program. And lastly, I want to remind you that new episodes will continue to air every Tuesday at three o'clock Mountain Standard Time. With that, this week's guest is Mr. Michael Lofton. Welcome, Michael. Hey, Eddie. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure, buddy. I appreciate it. Um, so Michael's channel, I've been following for about six months. I mentioned this when I was talking to Eric Ibarra. And so the YouTube channel, you guys got to check it out if you haven't already. I bet most of you have. It's Reason and Theology on YouTube. And I'll let Michael address this during the video. But from my observation, they try to cover a number of things. They focus on debates. They focus on dialogue about really tough doctrines in the Catholic faith. And they also focus on dialogue amongst different um, I don't know what you'd call it. Within Catholicism, there are different viewpoints on liturgy. And I think that they do a good job of kind of bridging the gap between all of those. So anyway, I don't know, Michael, if that covers a big portion of it. <laughs> that That's actually a very, very good overview of what I intend to do and try to do. So yeah. Right on, right on. So Michael, feel free, share your, your testimony. I think yeah. I heard you, a brief part of it, you were on the journey home. Mm -hmm. uh, with Marcus mm -hmm. Grodi years ago, but like mm -hmm. I've mentioned many times, things change and there are always updates. So, and there have been some updates since then too. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll get to those. Well, right. I mean, well, I, we should probably start from the beginning might help uh, to kind of understand my journey a little bit better. Um, you know, I was born here in the United States in Louisiana uh, into a, um, you know, relatively Christian household. And uh, my father and mother decided to move to Israel when I was two years old to do some Christian missionary work there. Uh, they worked for the Christian embassy. And um, I vaguely remember it, but uh, not a whole lot about it. And I didn't really have any kind of formation in Christianity at the time. Uh, around four years old there, um, my mother divorced my father, brought us back to the United States. And uh, we didn't really have any kind of formation at that point in, in religion. Um, around, however, the year, well, I was seven years old, she converted to Judaism. And she wanted to bring us back to Israel this time, but now to practice Judaism in Israel. Sure. Uh, so here I was, seven years old, living in Israel, practicing Judaism as the head of the household at the age of seven. Uh, so I would do these different liturgical prayers and stuff like that on the Sabbath, not knowing anything of what I was doing. But I mean, it was yeah. an interesting experience. Uh, but um, it was still pretty, pretty nominal. And <clears throat> by the age of 12, we decided to come back to the United States. And at that point, I moved in with my father. And, um, you know, again, I didn't have any kind of religious convictions at the time. Um, but my father started taking me to a charismatic, non-denominational charismatic church, and <clears throat> eventually I, I decided to become a Christian, and I was baptized 
at the age of 12. It was a Trinitarian baptism, became a Christian. Um, and, you know, as most people do, they fall away yeah. in their teens and uh, all that stuff when you get in high school and college. And so um, I, I became pretty a pretty nominal Christian uh, and then started to kind of take a, a turn in, in the wrong direction and lived a pretty wayward life. Uh, I moved to New York City at the age of 22. Uh, actually, no, I'm sorry, I wasn't 22. I moved there at 19. Um, I lived there for a little while, you know, sowed my wild oats, all that stuff. I got to the point, however, that I really hit rock bottom. Uh, the woman that I was with at the time, she and I were not married and we had a child, uh, but she decided to have an abortion. She decided to abort the child against my will. That really wow. devastated me. Even though I wasn't practicing Christianity or anything, I wanted the child. She did not. That caused a lot of problems between us because we, we did get married after that. But it, it caused quite a few issues. And um, like I said, I, I hit rock bottom. I had already been through a lot in 22 years. And at that point, for my first child, the way I felt is my first child was murdered against my will, and I couldn't do anything about it. Um, the, the justice system does not care about fathers and their, their consent to this matter. That really hit me hard. And, and I came to the point that I really didn't want to move forward with life. I remember praying again, I was not, was not, you know, taking my faith seriously. But I do remember praying around that time. God, I'm 22 years old. I'm not going to do another 22 of these years. So you're going to have to do something. Uh, if, you, if you want me to continue to live, because uh, I don't want to do another 22 years. <clears throat> so he providentially did do something at that time. Uh, there was some guys who, you know, I, I met just kind of doing street, they were doing street evangelization. And uh, one guy, I, 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 from what I understood, his story was he, he went to prison for 20 something years. I, I think he had killed a couple people, went to prison for a few years, and in prison, uh, became a Christian. And so when he got out of prison, he was really on fire and uh, telling people about Christianity and giving them Bibles. Wow. This guy gave me a Bible, but it wasn't just a regular Bible. It was like this one of those commentary hardback Bibles that's probably $50, $60. He just told me to keep it. And, and, I, and the guy doesn't know me from Adam. Yeah. So I thought that's pretty cool that somebody who doesn't know me cares enough about me to actually give me something that they believe would help me spiritually. But number two, um, that's an expensive Bible. So I was just, I was really impressed by this. I mean, so I, I just said, you know what? I'm at the end of my rope anyway. Let me just read this thing. Cause I have nothing else to do with my life at this point. I'm, I'm, at, I'm, I'm done. So I did that. Um, I read the Bible cover to cover in about 30 days or less, somewhere around there. And I was not a reader. I was not a reader. My philosophy was, why read a book when you can watch TV? <laughs> so I was not a reader, a big step, but, right I, but I was desperate. <laughs> and so I said, let me read this thing. And so I would read it on the bus to work while I'm at work on the bus back while I'm at home. I wouldn't turn on the TV. Um, you know, I would just read day, day and night. As soon as I get a chance, whatever spare time. And so I was putting in a lot of reading at that time. 
to just, you know, can't until I can't read anymore until my eyes are just too blurry. And then I just go to sleep. Wow. Um, I did that. And like I said, I ended up reading it cover to cover within probably a little less than 30 days. And by the time I was done reading scripture, there was a pretty big change in me. There wasn't just one moment, but it was in that period of time that I noticed there was a big change. And I remember saying to myself, I've never read anything like this, even though I've never read a whole lot to begin with, but there, there's something different substantially about what I just read that is very different than anything I've read before. And it really, um, it had a major change in my life where I did a complete 180. Everybody who knew me knew something significantly changed because I, I very much became different in the way I conducted myself and my thoughts on life and my aspirations. And, and I was a very joyful person. I was, I was finally happy to be alive. And for the first time that I could remember, I actually felt I was alive. Wow. Um, it was a very, very profound experience. And that, that's something that just has, has always stuck with me. Well, I didn't have much formation though at the time, right? I was just still around these guys who have a street ministry. They don't really know much about the faith. They're doing their best. They're sincere, but they're very confused in their theology. Uh, they, in some ways, they unintentionally misled me in some very bad ways. Again, they didn't mean sure. any wrong, but they yeah. were just very um, misinformed. And so I, um, I eventually came back from New York to Louisiana uh, again and uh, decided you know let me go to college and, and things like that where it's cheaper because in New York it's pretty expensive so came back to Louisiana started going to a Baptist church and started to get a little bit of formation there and um, heard about the reformed you know denomination started looking into the reformed aspects and uh, you know my wife and I at the time we had to decide okay well do we do we baptize our daughter or not? Because we had a daughter that was on the way. That brought me to consider the issue of infant baptism, which is a pretty big deal for a Baptist. Absolutely. And I came out realizing, okay, I need to have my child baptized. So I can't remain Baptist anymore. Uh, by necessity, I, I need to convert to a community that does baptism and the closest thing theologically for me at the time was Presbyterianism, which I did. Absolutely. So I became Presbyterian and, you know, of course the Presbyterians really are going to push uh, church history a whole lot more than the Baptists, right? Uh, they, they, they push doctrine a whole lot more, at least the circles that I ran in, people, other people might have different experiences, the circles that I ran in. Uh, there was better theological formation, but there was also an emphasis on church history. So I started to do just that. I started to, uh, to study church history, um, which I had previously not had any kind of formation in. Let me ask you this real quick. How did you jump? I know you had the radical experience. How did you jump from non-denominational? You know, you were baptized at 12 in that yeah. church. You just found your way into the Baptist church because of the street evangelists that My, were kind of my dad was going to a Baptist church at the time and there okay. weren't any non-denoms that were like-minded, sure. like the New York ministry that I was part of. So I just said, let me, let me try this Baptist one out. And it, it was, it was, 
equivalent enough for sure. me to kind of make a just a pretty seamless transition. It wasn't a, a huge uh, transition or anything. Um, so <clears throat> not, not anything substantial. Um, now, you know, I, I'm, I make my way to Presbyterianism and they're wanting to, you know, do some formation in church history. And so I start reading the fathers. And, uh, I start eating up the fathers. In fact, I, and, and I'll also say that they do tend to be more anti-Catholic because they're much more aware of their roots in the reformation and their opposition to Catholicism. So I start to look a little bit into Catholicism, but I'm especially looking into church history. I'm reading the fathers. Now I read all of the apostolic fathers. So I started eating up, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, Clement, uh, Irenaeus, and others. Um, and I, I realized, wow, there, there's some things in here that don't really go with the Presbyterian understanding. I continue to read, ask questions, the theology professors, my pastors, theologians, I'm reading, reaching out to them, emailing patristic professors, asking them questions about some of the inconsistencies that I'm seeing, and just sincerely trying to get answers from a Presbyterian perspective so that I can remain Presbyterian and, sure. and digest this stuff. Uh, continued to read through Augustine, Ambrose, Cyril of Jerusalem, Cyril of Alexandria, and on and on and on. St. Bede, and then I started to get into Anselm and others, and I'm looking at all this stuff, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm just not seeing enough continuity. And then I especially say, okay, well, look, one of the most important distinctives is the issue of uh, justification by faith alone is understood in the Reformed perspective. So I started to uh, look into that matter and ask, uh, is there continuity here with the early church on this matter? Um, because if there isn't, then I, I think I'm in a communion that is engaging in some serious novelty. Because, I mean, this is one of the main things that the Re Reformation was over. Exactly. So if I'm going to be in this communion, I need to see some continuity here. I can maybe deal with some discontinuity in other areas, but this is a, a, a substantial break that we made with the Catholics over. So I want to see some continuity. And it's salvific based. So it's pretty, yeah, it's, pretty uh, so it's not like this trivial issue. This is pretty important. We're talking about the salvation of souls. So this yeah. is a big issue yeah. um, among others, but this was one of, one of the big ones. And so I start to study the issue of justification by, uh, by faith alone. And then of course, look at justification throughout history and i'm i'm seeing some some substantial discontinuity um and some and some substantial continuity for the catholic position and that was very concerning for me so at this point i say look i, I need to find something with apostolic succession a lot of these fathers are extremely clear on the office of bishop which presbyterians don't have on apostolic succession and um, on their understanding of the Eucharist and justification. I need to find something a little bit more historically rooted because I just feel that at this point, my communion is disconnected with the past substantially. Um, and so I, I start to consider high church Anglicanism, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, and barely consider Catholicism. I had developed a very anti-Catholic 
bent going back to the original group that handed me the Bible and all that. They exposed me to videos like uh, by Dave Hunt, a woman who rides the beast, which is a documentary all about how the yep. Catholic church is the harlot of Babylon in the book of revelation. And it's just, it's, it's very anti-Catholic. It's kind of like a Jack chick track, I was but, just, I was just but in a video format. Jack chick. So oh, it, it, it was interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's what I had ingrained in me. So I was very reluctant to consider Catholic. Catholics, I just said, oh, let me look more into Anglicanism and Eastern Orthodoxy, which I did, but kind of keeping Catholicism in the background there because I am seeing some continuity with the Catholics. So um, I I eventually just said I, I can't do Anglicanism because the, the conservative communions, uh, the liberal communions, it's obvious why I couldn't do that, but even the conservative ones, they had uh, female priests and things like that, or at least they're in communion with people who have female priests. And I just saw this as a substantial break with the past. And this is definitely a sign of novelty. So um, it, I, I couldn't take Anglicanism very seriously uh, after that matter. So I just kind of wrote that off and thought, okay, look, it, it's ultimately down to Catholicism and orthodoxy for me. Um, <clears throat> and so I really looked a whole lot into Eastern Orthodoxy at the time, uh, but then started digging further into Catholicism. And ultimately, I felt that Catholicism uh, is much more in continuity with the information in the first millennium due to the papacy, ecumenical councils, how to establish doctrine, things like that. Um, and so I, I said, okay, I mean, I think, I think this is my answer. I need to go the Catholic route. So advent of 2011, I go to my first mass and I was uh, confirmed in 2012. Now, once I get into the Catholic church, it's chaos. There's all kinds of scandals going on globally, which I was a little familiar with, but I started encountering a whole lot of the local and a lot of it started to impact my experience with Catholicism because it's starting to come for me and my family. Yep. And I'm not going to go into all the details of all the things that I had to see and deal with, uh, but it got really, 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 really bad. But I stuck in there for quite a while, for about five years, uh, just stuck through the matter and just continued to keep my eyes on uh, the promises of Christ. But it got to the point that, I, I, I and my family were experiencing just way too many, uh, way too many scandals, way too many problems. And I, I just said, look, maybe this is God telling me I made the wrong decision because I've, I've put up with this. I've put up with stuff that nobody should ever have to deal with. And this, I'm not seeing the mark of Christ in here. I'm not seeing, um, I'm not seeing this as being the place of God's truth and fullness when I'm having this kind of experience. And I was very hurt by a lot of the things that happened very personally and deeply hurt. Uh, again, not going to go into a whole lot of details here, but it, it was, it was very, very rough. So I said, okay, look, um, I, I need to take a second look at orthodoxy. Maybe this is God, God's way of explaining you, you made the wrong decision. 
I consider it for a while, but I don't make any quick moves. But um, eventually it just got to the point that um, I, I felt that would be the best decision uh, for me to move forward. And all signs seem to be pointing me in that direction. And so in about uh, 20, the year 2017, I reluctantly converted to orthodoxy. I say reluctantly because I just felt like I have no other choice. Yeah. I can't stay where I'm at because where I'm at practically uh, what was just too scandalous to deal with. I, I just had to deal with too much. It was, it was just too rough. Um, you know, when you get, get to a point where you can't even go to any of the local Catholic churches because of some very deep wounds by people there, by priests there, by the bishop, by um, people just you know, did a lot of things. It, it's, it's, it, you, you find yourself at the point where you just think I practically can't even go to mass and live as a Catholic anymore. I just, I just can't. Uh, so I, I reluctantly felt that the only option is Eastern Orthodoxy. So I go to Eastern Orthodoxy and, you know, while I'm there, I'm still pretty hurt over what happened with Catholicism uh, in my experience with the Catholic church. But, you know, I, I some of that pain starts to go away and I'm able to start to, you know, reflect on the situation and think of, okay, well, where, but where's the truth? Where, where's the mark of truth? What, what does reason show you? What does the first century show you? I'm able to start thinking more objectively than I'm hurt. And it's, and it's, and I don't have a practical way of living as a Catholic and all kinds of things. I'm able to start to think through things a lot more clearly. And I start to really consider the issue again, okay, well, if orthodoxy really is, um, you know, consistent with the first millennium, um, I'm definitely going to see that in its ecclesiology. And I think ultimately, most of the debates are going to boil down here. So I need to really dive into ecclesiology, which is what I did. And I, I just continued time after time after time to see more attestation to the papacy and the Catholic claims of authority and more discontinuity with orthodoxy. The more I look into it, the more I'm not seeing my faith confirmed. I'm seeing my faith being denied in the data of history. And so I'm at a very difficult point because I'm, I'm intellectually seeing Catholicism and I want to go where, wherever the truth is. Yeah. Intellectually seeing the Catholic faith. I've had such a horrible experience there. But then again, truth isn't determined by personal experience, right? I mean, truth doesn't, I'm not a relativist. I know this. So logically, I realized this isn't working. And ironically, it was the Second Vatican Council and its words about how in Lumen Gentium, uh, you know, somebody who knows that the Catholic Church is established by Christ, if wow. they fail to join it or remain in it, uh, cannot be saved. And that started to really convict me because I'm really saying that this does appear to be the institution that Christ established. And I'm right now objectively in schism from it. I don't intend to be, I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to be in schism, but I'm objectively. Uh, my, my bishop's not in communion with the Bishop of Rome, and so I, I technically am. And if this is the institution established by Christ, and I believe that it is, I'm seeing it confirmed uh, that it is, I'm in a very dangerous position if I continue to just say, well, 
I, I'm not going to go with what I know to be true at this point. I need to just remain where I'm at and blah, blah, blah. I realize that, look, that's a dangerous place. You can't be saved if you're in this position and you fail to remain in the Catholic church. So in, um, I think it was either late 19, uh, uh 2020, I'm sorry, late 2019, okay. early 2020, right around there, I was formally reconciled with the Catholic church, um, which I, you just simply go to confession in this case. And, uh, they, they, um, you know, they, of course, absolve you for any sins, but also remove any canonical penalties and things like that for having gone to another communion. So I was officially reconciled in 2020. And um, yeah, I've uh, been back in communion since then. And I've learned a whole lot, even even since uh, that experience, since coming back in 2020, learned a whole lot that really still continues to confirm the Catholic position. And so I, I, I kind of share that to explain to people that I completely get where they're coming from. Yeah. If they come into the Catholic church and have a really rough experience, I get where they're coming from. Ultimately, you're going to also have some of these rough experiences elsewhere. Because when I went elsewhere, I did encounter some uh, other problems there as well. And so I realized, okay, you, you can't make decisions based on how are things working practically because having some very practical difficulties some some similar some different but i had some pretty significant difficulties practically with the orthodox church as well again some similar some different but still uh, issues yeah issues and so clearly i can't make a decision based on that because i'm going to have that wherever i go and that just confirmed what i already knew i need to make a decision based on what is true not an emotional uh feeling not uh you know, not um, any kind of practical reasons. I need to make a decision based upon what is true, what did Christ establish objectively? How do we determine that objectively? And so that has really helped me in my current uh, research, because right now I'm working on a doctorate dealing um, with the topic of the magisterium teaching authority. That really helped me with what where I'm currently at, because um, I, I am in the dissertation asking the question, how do we determine uh, some of these indicators of when something is taught authoritatively or infallibly? And it all really ties into a lot of the uh, questions that I previously had throughout this whole journey. So the whole thing, the whole experience, as, as bad as some parts were and hard as they were on me, they did help me grow and learn. And not only that, but also be able to relate to other people who are currently struggling, who currently feel scandalized. I get it, completely understand. But we have to keep our eyes fixed on what is truth. So yeah. where is the truth? We have to keep our eyes fixed on that. Anyways, that, um, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. I love it. I love it. So objective. So, okay, here's a question. Yeah. Your orthodox brothers mm -hmm. and sisters i know mm -hmm. that you get a lot of dialogue on your channel first of all were you orthodox when you launched reason and theology yes because you're saying yes, 2020 yeah. that yeah that was yeah. not too long ago so at the um yeah because it started at rnt january of 
2019. I was I was still orthodox, but I was still searching, searching. through these these matters. And of of course, I mean, I was I was sincere in my conversion to orthodoxy. I was doing my best to believe what what my uh, church teaches, but I, I'm just looking through the matter and I'm I'm just not seeing it. And so it's kind of this faith seeking understanding, and the reason is going contrary to what my church is saying and the data is going contrary to it. And, uh, it was just, it, I got to the point I was unable to really reconcile it and it made more sense. Um, just seeing uh, the Catholic claims, accepting the Catholic claims. And so, yeah, you, while, while I was, um, about a, I think it was about a year after RNT, I was, I was reconciled to Rome, but that's why I still have a very strong emphasis on Eastern Orthodox and yeah. Roman Catholic discussions. I've been Great. on both sides. Incredible. Um, and, and I think those are discussions that need to be had because there are a lot of people who are going through the same thing I went through. Maybe they, they aren't going through some of the, the uh, things I had to deal with as far as on a practical level and from some priests and, and, and scandals like that. They may or may not have to deal with some of those things. I don't know. My, my case was pretty bad, but there's a lot of people who are still wrestling with these questions and they're struggling with, well, how do I reconcile what I see in the Catholic church today yeah. with what it teaches and how do I square these things? So there's a lot of people who are asking those same questions that I was asking. And I, and I realized that. So I say, well, it might be good to discuss these things, right? Yeah. And and this is, in fact, how Reason and Theology kind of got started. While I'm still Orthodox, I'm, I'm, I'm talking through these issues with other people. And one of them was Eric. And so what we were doing one time is doing a video chat, just talking through uh, ecclesia, ecclesiological issues. And, um, I, you know, I, I eventually just thought, I know a lot of people are asking these same questions. I bet they would benefit from hearing this conversation that he and I are having. So let me just post some of this on, on uh, YouTube. And that's how the channel started is just kind of posting the conversations that he and I would have. And it developed into interviews and roundtable discussions, Bates, debates yeah. and everything else that it's developed into now. Um, so that's why I try to focus on a lot of these areas because I know there's a lot of people are asking these questions they have the same problems they had the same struggles um they and, and they might need some guidance and maybe i have a thing or two that I could offer <laughs> as well here's the solution yeah so as i'm doing this i reverted what 18 months ago so raised catholic mm -hmm. and for me to return after being a non-denominational evangelical for 10 years there have been a few comments like oh it's easy you're just returning to your childhood faith even though I went through the apologetics and had a very, very heavily intellectual journey, right? Mm -hmm. In your case, I think it's a strong witness for you to not have been raised Catholic. And for mm -hmm. you, just like, well, Eric was raised Catholic, but to be able to really critique mm -hmm. history, mm -hmm. go back in time, and you're not simply saying, I'm just going right. to return. I'm just going to return to how I was raised. Yeah, no. And that's not what I said either, but I yeah. can understand someone objecting to it or assuming, oh, it's just convenient. You didn't know where else to go. So you just fell back on that, which you knew, but it turns mm. out I didn't know my childhood faith at all. Mm. I had to discover it basically. So I think that's, that's, that's the case with a lot of, a lot of Catholics who, who grow yeah. up. They generally don't have, 
a formation in the faith. So they end up rediscovering the, or discovering the faith, I should say, for the first time later on and reverting back to the Catholic church. Yeah. Exactly. I think, I think that was even the case with Eric. I know he was just, I think he was baptized Catholic, but he didn't really have any kind of formation in it. Exactly. Exactly. So um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, so you were looking at the high Anglican church briefly, mm. what's fascinating there. And when I did all the, and I'm continuing to do it with the reformation, you can see specifically when a denomination started, mm-hmm. people can say all day long, Oh, it's not a denomination. It's the original church but you can mark it in history, 1534, right? Mm -hmm. The beginning of the Anglican church. Did you find that going back in time when all all you saw was Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, did it appear like everything kind of just dissolved into each other, if that makes any sense? Or did you view 1054 as the birth Mm -hmm. of Eastern Orthodoxy? I know that many people would say the opposite. Oh, that's the birth of Catholicism, but does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, I think I, if I understand the question correctly, you're, you're, you're asking, you know, did I, did I, while I'm going through this, did I think that 1054 was really when there was a split or was I seeing more of a intermingling between yes. these things? You know, what I've observed is that 1054 is, is not very relevant to the discussions. I, so I, I realized that no, 1054 is not really when there was this formal break. Um, if we're going to talk about an actual real cemented break with the uh, Orthodox or them with us, however you want to put it, whichever side you want to look at, both sides, I think, can come to the conclusion that, well, first of all, during the Crusades, when you have Latin bishops setting up rival jurisdictions and bishops, you do have a break there. Whether they're right or wrong is a different thing, but you do start having a break there. And it really starts to get solidified after the Orthodox's, um, the Eastern Orthodox Church's rejection of the Council of Florence. At that point, after Florence and their rejection of Florence, that's when it's a done deal. Mm-hmm. Before then, you have the East coming in and out of communion, and you've had this problem through the first millennium. From the first millennium, there have been Eastern churches coming in and out of communion. It's, it's always been kind of shaky. There's been a, quite a few times, hundreds of years, where total, if you add them all up, where uh, some, a lot of these Eastern parts were out of communion. Maybe some were in, some were out. They're not unified, of course. Sure. Um, so it wasn't as clear cut as, oh, just 1054, there's this break. No, there was quite a few breaks going on before 1054, and there was some reunion going on after 1054. Mm-hmm. But from it, from the Council of Florence, for sure, after their rejection of it, yeah, at that point, you have this major break. I had also noticed it's not, of course, just... Mm-hmm. Uh, a break with some of these Eastern Orthodox churches, but there was also breaks with some Oriental Orthodox churches going much further back. And so I had to consider Oriental Orthodoxy for a little bit of time as well. You know, I think that often people don't give them a fair shake. And I had to do a little bit of uh, studying there to, to, to give them a shot. I mean, are, are the, because we tend to think Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, those are the only two games in town. The Oriental Orthodox also have a claim to apostolic that's succession. Good, so that's they, a they do point. need to be considered, but I would reject the Oriental Orthodox uh, conclusion for the same reason why, I, re, I mean, 
the ortho, Oriental Orthodox position, I would reject them for the same reason that I reject Eastern Orthodoxy ultimately. Yeah. Uh, it boils down to claims of authority uh, in the papacy. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the other thing, what you were describing about the offenses, different issues, mm-hmm. wherever you go, mm-hmm. you know, I saw, again, back to the Reformation, what Luther was dealing with around him right a lot wrong with the church a lot uh, wrong with clergy and abuses that were taking place in his area and in rome right Mm. well as i'm reading his writings and those that have written about him pro protestant um there is a they set him up as a victim Mm. and with the victim mentality, people that I've spoken to, myself included, when bad things have happened to them, they've immediately said it's time to find the mm-hmm. next church. Mm-hmm. Or even within Catholicism, if someone hurts them at a given, at a parish, mm-hmm. it's time to find another parish. Um, so what you said was so important because you were admitting that you were thinking that way but then you kind of rose above it. And so yeah. every time I come back to Luther, I'm not going to say simply he was a victim. I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm saying that a lot of what he wrote and a lot of what is written about him paints him as a victim. And by doing so, you can go to the Bible and then find the antithesis of what mm-hmm. you felt hurt you, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. that makes sense. It does. So in the case of a, in his case of a troubled conscience Mm. about salvation, you're then forced to blanket Catholicism during that time period and act as if everyone felt that they were condemned to hell. When in fact, there are saints all over the place living according to what the Catholic church has always taught, living with grace (laughs) And not just saying, if I don't work constantly, I'm going to go to hell. But if you paint that picture, and then he's the poster boy of that, then it just sets up this narrative that there has to be another way found in Holy Scripture. You're bringing a very important part up, because I haven't mentioned this part yet of my experience. Um, when I when I came into the Catholic Church at 2012, it was immediately, as I said, immediately I started having to deal with some very, very bad things. Uh, and again, I admit my experience is not as bad as most people and what they have to put up with. It was pretty rough. Um, it started immediately. It started immediately. Um, and, and I realized, okay, I, I can't make a decision based on how I feel and people hurt me and things like that. I need to keep my eyes on the truth. And so I, that's, that's why I stuck out, stuck it through for so long, for about five years before I started considering orthodoxy. I put up with a lot of stuff during that time because I realized you can't make decisions based on how you feel or practical situations and things like that. Um, but part of that, just one small aspect of was in 2012 when I first made my first confession right after my first confession, I started to really doubt, uh, did I make a proper confession? Did I confess my sins properly? So I started to really struggle with scrupulosity. And you mentioned Luther here. 
That's exactly what he was struggling with, with scrupulosity. I began to immediately experience some of those same problems that Luther was experiencing with the Catholic Church. I began to experience that when it comes to scrupulosity. And um, it, it got extremely bad. And I didn't have any confessors who were able to really help me through it. I did, even, I did have a priest who mocked me for it. But I definitely didn't have any priests who could help me through it. And the last thing you do is mock a, a scrupulous person for their scrupulosity. They're already in very bad pain because they're in constant fear that they're going to hell. Um, and so what they need is actually a good confessor who can help orient their conscience better, uh, help them kind of get back on track. Because what scrupulosity is, is it's somebody whose conscience is shot. It's like a moral compass that's just been broken and its dial is yep. just spinning all around. That's Nailed what it. it is. And you yep. need a, a, a good confessor who will show you true north. And will help orient your compass, you know, back, back on point. And, and uh, if you don't have that, you're gonna really struggle because you don't have anybody who's helping you through that process of scrupulosity, and it can become extremely unbearable. Yeah. Because you get to the point where you go to confession, you immediately are looking for another confessor because you feel like maybe that confessor didn't absolve my sins properly, or maybe I didn't confess my sins properly, or maybe the priest didn't have proper intentions in absolving my sins. You start to get really, really scrupulous and struggle and constantly are worrying, am I really forgiven? Have I made a good confession? Did I secretly hide something in my heart am i deceiving myself yeah. that i hid something and, yeah. you know it just becomes but no amount of logic and reason will help that person when they're going through it they they know how absurd this is yeah they logically know this doesn't make sense of course i'm not hiding anything in the confession blah 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 yeah. they you can't use reason they know that this is absurd it's a spiritual problem. It's also partly an OCD issue. Yep. Um, so <laughs> what they need is a really good confessor. And I didn't have that. And I think the same thing happened with Luther is he didn't have the proper uh, people available to him to really help him deal with the scrupulosity. And what he did is he found comfort in his understanding of the gospel and justification by faith alone. And I completely get you're looking for an out. You're looking for relief. If I mean, it got for me bad, really to the point where I'm so focused on, I'm so afraid that I'm in a state of mortal sin. And if I were to die, I'm going to hell and I don't want to be separated from God. It's to the point that I'm so distracted with that. And, and I'm not trying to be distracted. I don't want to be distracted. Yeah. But I'm so distracted that I can't perform my job. And now I'm getting fired from my job because I can't, I can't focus on my job. And, and I have other people, children and everything, and my wife who are depending on me financially. So a lot of pressure riding, it, be, it can become debilitating Absolutely. Uh, to be in that state where you're dealing with scrupulosity. And this is just one thing that I'm dealing with in the midst of a million other things, other things. Um, and if you don't have that proper guidance during that time, you're going to look for something to give you relief. So I get where Luther was coming from and trying to find that release, but he chose the wrong thing. What, it, what it, he really needed was somebody who could have 
just helped him die. Well, what's, what's funny about that is he did have a legitimate confessor that he thanked yes. through the year, Stalpitz, right? Yes. And despite that, again, the issue of scrupulosity was pinned on Catholicism as mm-hmm. a unit, mm-hmm. not pinned as a mental condition within religion. And that is a key factor for me. So you didn't even know this, but the book I wrote last year about uh, two years of my life, mm-hmm. it was all about scrupulosity. Yeah. And yeah. it was while I was Protestant. And instead of dealing with a priest, it was with my wife. So mm-hmm. this was what everything you just said is yeah. exactly what applied to the situation. <laughs> right. I couldn't get out of it. Yeah. I felt unbelievably tormented. Yeah. And yet, oh, yeah. And you want a relief. You want sure. to find sure. that escape hatch. Yeah. And it drives you insane. But yep. that's, <laughs> that's what it I, is. I get it. That's why when people come to me and they're struggling with their scrupulosity, I can, I completely understand. Yeah. First thing I tell them is get Father Thomas's Santa's book, Understanding Scrupulosity. Yeah. That's number one. Number yeah. two, you really need to find a good confessor. You Nailed really need it. to find somebody who knows what they're talking about. And this is also what the saints, Liguori especially, is oh. going to say, yep. is, is that you you have to find somebody who has a good con- formation in their conscience, and they can kind of help bring you back to true north. Once you get that, you can start to come out of it. And it, and it, and, and it, I want everybody, anybody who's watching this who might be struggling with scrupulosity, I want them to know that there is hope. You do come out of this and you will come out on the other end, um, not having to deal with that issue. You'll, you, you will be able to come out of it. It's not going to last forever, but there are some things that can make it easier and, and bring you out of it quicker. Exactly. Well, I, I found a benefit to it. I feel that things are are delicate, but they don't consume. And to have that, I, I don't know how else to explain it. It's kind of like a delicate conscience that's just, you know, sure. you know the boundaries pretty well instinctually, Holy Spirit guiding you through it. Um, and I didn't have that my entire right. life. It was just the lanes were as broad as you could make them. And now they're narrow, but it's not in the view of limitation. It's this, it's a freedom with, within right. those boundaries. Yeah, I, I used to have, you know, prior to coming to Catholicism, I had a very lax conscience. Yeah, lax, exactly. As soon as I came to Catholicism, it was a very, very, very rigorous and strict conscience. And, yeah. and overly so. And both are bad, both are harmful and dangerous. Uh, but when you start dealing with scrupulosity, you're dealing with the more strict, rigorous aspect. And that that is it's rough it, it can be really really rough the good the comforting thing however uh i think is most people are struggling with scrupulosity um again it's gonna you know there's exceptions but most people are struggling it's because they want to obey god so most of the time the things that they think has caused them to be a mortal sin is not actually a mortal sin. It's probably not even a venial sin. Yep. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I'll have people contact me and they'll ask me questions on scrupulosity and I, I feel so bad for them because I know what they're going through and they'll ask me something and I'll say, this is not only a, not a mortal sin. It's not even a venial sin. There, there, there's no, there's nothing even venial here. And, and so just be assured that, 
uh, what you're dealing with here is is scrupulosity. There, there's absolutely no sin here. You need to be at peace. Yep. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if 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 you ever have that experience. By the way, people contacting you since you not, wrote about scrupulosity. Not yet. I have. You know, part of what I want to do is I want to talk about it more. But I just yeah. felt called to hear testimonies, and then through the testimonies, maybe I'll be able to share that because I would love to. It doesn't matter that I wasn't going to a priest. What matters is you could have a thought and and you'd say i didn't that wasn't my thought i feel like i'm first of all going insane right and that thought is going to eat away at me for the next 3 4 days yeah and it's horrible oh yeah and so yeah. yeah i would love nothing more than to be able to help people and say yeah you <laughs> there are answers you nailed it a good confessor I actually did a series, a local radio station here had a five-part series where I came in and got to talk about different saints and how they dealt with scrupulosity mm -hmm. and we, mm -hmm. you know, St. Ignatius and St. Mm -hmm. Therese. Mm -hmm. And so once again, it was people that were, they were able to navigate through it. They weren't saying, oh, I'm a victim of the Catholic theology. Mm -hmm. It's all about guilt. I need to go find the truth where there's no guilt. That, that is in no way. Yeah. Yeah. The I don't solution. think it's, yeah, I don't think it's Catholic theology that is a problem. I think it's a misunderstanding of some aspects of Catholic morality that is a problem. And it's also poor formation in their conscience. Yes. And, and that, and that, to be honest, I think part of it is also a spiritual attack. Yeah. Um, it, it, I, I do think sometimes not to just over spiritualize everything, but I do think sometimes some of this are, it is a demonic attack. Yeah. You are being um, attacked in this area. Uh, some of it, again, like I said, is OCD, poor formation, yeah. blah, blah, blah. I, I wouldn't yeah. blame it on Catholic doctrine or anything like that. No, no, no. I just saw that. Yeah. And some people do that. You know, they, they think, well, the problem is the Catholic church. And I had some Protestants, you know, um, tell me that. And some even Catholics tell me that. And so I began to wonder, well, is the Catholic church the problem? Is, is that the issue and why I'm experiencing these things? And uh, I realized, no, that that isn't the case. Unfortunately for me, I did not have a good confessor who could work with me through the matter. So I had to get through it without a confessor. Um, I mean, I had a confessor that would confess my sins too, but without a confessor who would be able to help me properly form my conscience, I should say. Got it. So, um, I, I had to go through it the, the hard way. So the easy <laughs> way is find you a good confessor if you have one available. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Um, can you take a moment, talk about what you're doing on reason and theology? I, again, studying the Reformation, you come across as, and this is a compliment because I know Erasmus can get a bad rap in the whole Reformation scheme of thing, but I feel like you're one part Erasmus and two parts St. Thomas More. You're, you're able to, I feel, like I said earlier, bridge gaps that other people do not and they don't even yeah. dare talk about the gaps right. and that's right. the that's the first part like so what if there's some hatred coming from both sides at least you're willing to address it and then at the same time the the reason i say saint thomas more is being able to check people lovingly by using the continuity the historical teaching that you've been referencing so yeah well and i appreciate the compliment i could only aspire to be saint thomas and uh but yeah um i i get what you're saying though as, as far as trying to bridge some things that's definitely my intention 
Um, I get criticism from both sides, both sides, from Catholics and Orthodox, because I will criticize some aspects that I see among some Catholics where they are maintaining positions, especially in ecclesiology and the magisterium, that is going to lead them away from the Catholic Church. It's going to lead them to orthodoxy, set of Kantism, or something yep. else, or maybe a- atheism or agnosticism. It's going to lead them away, though. Um, and then I'm engaging the problems that I'm seeing with orthodox ecclesiology and its inconsistency with the first millennium. So I get it from both sides. <laughs> and, and what I'm trying to do is... Um, you know, bridge this gap, because I think that there are some things that we could learn from the East, but there, but the truth is substantially and in its fullness with uh, the Catholic Church. So I I am trying to uh, address that in a lot of the shows. So you'll see me take very nuanced positions, right? I don't fit in with just, um, uh, maybe some of these stereotypical traditionalists. I'm yeah. definitely not a liberal, definitely not a modernist, but I don't fit in with your stereotypical traditionalists because I will criticize some aspects of us reversing the order of the sacraments. Although I understand in the West, it's not evil what we've done. It's it's okay what that we've uh, in some cases, reverse the sacraments and and also uh, separated confirmation from baptism. Uh, we no longer have infant communion. These are not evil things. These are disciplinary changes that are okay. They're just, in my opinion, not the best. And I think the East has a better approach in the Eastern Catholic position. Uh, practices, generally practices the, that way. Yeah. So the Catholic Church itself recognizes that this is, of course, a, a viable alternative. So I don't fit in with that more Latin right traditionalist group in every way because I might uh, criticize some aspects of the development of the Latin right. Um, again, not condemning it, but just saying I think the East has done a little bit better in preserving this liturgical tradition or this disciplinary tradition. But then I'm criticizing some aspects of the East where I think the West has done a way better job at preserving some of its uh, practices, and especially when it comes to the way it does theology, yeah, the way it thinks and 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 uh, addresses theology. So you'll see me take a very nuanced approach. I'm not one of those guys who just throws out Vatican II, yep. but I also don't have to say that Vatican II is the best council that has ever happened and is the best thing since sliced bread. I can take a balanced position where I accept Vatican II. Yep. I accept its teachings. I assent to it. And yet I can uh, contest some of the disciplinary and prudential decisions that I, I don't think are best at this point. And that's, need to yeah. be reversed. that's my so point about I, Erasmus. I take a, yep. Yeah, I take a very nuanced approach. I could then criticize some aspects of Pope Francis, but then I don't dismiss his magisterium. Yeah, he is the Pope. He doesn't have the authority to teach. And so I don't automatically dismiss what he has to say. I also recognize there are some exceptional cases where one could withhold assent in very rare cases. And I talk about this on the show and I apply them into some cases here and there. So you'll see me on the show often having these conversations and taking a very nuanced position. And so that's effectively one of the things I try to do on the show. Then we also do debates and roundtable discussions with non-orthodox and non-catholics maybe a muslim or something like that so uh we we, we do a little bit of everything <laughs> yeah 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 
Well, keep doing it. I, I, I think that a lot of people would say you need to put, you know, firm position here, firm position here. And if you are willing to look at two sides and find commonality, that becomes somehow cowardice or you're compromising when in fact, that's exactly how you keep this ship moving. You're able to call out or critique both sides of something mm -hmm. without losing your mind and remembering that Christ called you and we're to love one another and right. not have our heads explode because there are these differences of opinion, differences of liturgy. I, I appreciate what you do, what you guys do. And that's why I Thank reached you. out to you in the first place. So. Thank you. And, and yeah. I, I intend to continue to move forward in that direction. So I hope it's going to be uh, beneficial. I do, I do get a fair amount of feedback from people saying, I really appreciate what you've done. You've helped save me from set of contism or going to orthodoxy, or I really appreciate it. I've, I've converted from the Orthodox church to the Catholic church. You've really helped save me from not going in this direction. And so I, I, I get some good feedback in addition to all the, the, the nastiness that I get from both sides. So <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it is encouraging it's to mature so, it's maturing you so it's all it's, good. It, so it's encouraging to hear that that you yeah. um you've appreciated it so thank you yeah man well cool um anything else you want to add any other projects you're working on or other websites um we we are doing the saint maximus the confessor institute that's on reason and theology.com you just okay. click on that page what i'm doing there is i have a whole bunch of different professors dr john joy dr matthew minder and a few others that I have in the works. And what they're doing is they're coming on and doing a lecture maybe once a month or once every two uh, weeks um, in a series and it's available for free. Okay. So I'm, I'm providing this so that people can get a, a good formation in the faith from actual theology professors. So some of this is graduate level material you get for free. Other stuff is going to be just very basics to the faith. So you don't have to have any kind of knowledge to Catholicism. It's just basic introduction to yeah. the Catholic faith, trying to provide this formation to people who want it for free. So you yeah. can check that reason at theology.com. Just click on St. Maximus, the confessor. We're adding uh, lectures pretty often there. So right on. Well, yeah. thank you, Michael. I appreciate your time. This was thanks for having me on. Yeah. A lot of fun Love to do it. Yeah. All right. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Until next time, take care and God bless. Bye.